You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Hey guys, welcome. If you want to um, follow along, we're going to look at the Word of God, Judges chapter 2, verses 8 through 19. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers, who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is the word of God. Uh, But we have been, we just kind of launched this new series through this Old Testament book called the Book of Judges. And I tried to kind of pitch to you last week as we kind of did this on-ramp into this book that uh, Judges is really a collection of true stories that are written with the intent to show you really two things, that you have a great need for a savior and that you have a great savior for your need. It's like two wings of a plane. You need both of them. You need to recognize that you're rebellious, and you also need to recognize that there's rescue offered to you. So tonight we're going to continue. Actually, the book of Judges, chapter 1 and chapter 2, are both introductory. So this will be kind of intro 2.0. Uh, but the way that I wanted to set this up was, I don't know if y'all are familiar with this TV show. It's called The Office. But um, if you've seen it, uh, one of the characters, Michael Scott, who is the office manager, figures out that the guy that's in the HR department, Toby, has been um, collecting all of these office complaints, inter-office grievances that all the different co-workers have been filing against each other, and he hasn't done anything with them. He hasn't addressed them. And so when Michael discovers this, he realizes, we've got to pull these files out and address every single one of them. And of course, there's this giant stack of grievances that have been written by Dwight Schrute against his co-worker, Jim Halpert, because Jim is the prankster and always messes with him. So, he, so the scene is Michael Scott sits down and starts reading through all of the grievances 
that Dwight Schrute has written about Jim. Here's the first one. Someone replaced all my pens and pencils with crayons. I suspect Jim Halpert. And I kind of like look over at Jim and he's got this like mischievous like smirk on his face. Next one. Everyone has called me Dwayne all day. I think Jim Halpert paid them to. And like Jim is nodding at the camera like, yep. And uh, next one, it says, this morning I found a bloody glove in my desk drawer and Jim Halpert tried to convince me I committed murder. I think he may be the real murderer. Next one. Jim Halpert said that there was an abandoned infant in the women's, women's room, and when I went to save the child, I saw Meredith on the can. <laughs> Next one. This morning, I knocked myself in the head with the phone. And Michael looks a little confused, and it kind of cuts to Jim, who's doing this monologue, and he says, that actually took a while. I had to put more and more nickels in his handset until he got used to the weight, and then I just took them all out. <laughs> but as he's... As he described that scenario, he, he starts to get a little somber. As he's describing it, he, like something kind of comes over him where he starts to get a little somber, and then it cuts back, and, and uh, Michael goes to the next one, and it reads, Every time I typed my name, it said diapers. <laughs> and it cuts back to Jim, who at this point is now being very downcast, and he says, These actually don't sound that funny one after the other. And it cuts back. And it says, by the end of the day, my desk was two feet closer to the copier. And it cuts over to Jim, who's at the camera. And he's looking really serious now. And he says, yeah, I just moved it an inch every time he went to the bathroom. And that's how I spent my entire day that day. And you can see something is happening in Jim. And and what is it that is happening? As he sees the big picture of his life with Dwight, he realizes, this is really stupid. Like, this is ridiculous. Something has to change here. And I begin that way because I think the author of chapter 2 is wanting to get the same reaction out of you and me. In many ways, he zooms out and he shows you this big picture so that when you see it, you'll have that same sort of reaction. You'll say, man, this is really stupid. What am I doing with my life? I've got Something needs to change. So here's what I want to do tonight. I just want to do two things. I want to just explain what the big picture is. We're just going to walk through Judges chapter 2, and then I want to try to answer, so what? Who cares? That's all I want to do. One, let's look at the big picture. Number two, so what? So let's look at the big picture. And tonight we're going to do something a little different. We've never done this before. We're, we're, we're getting very cutting edge around here. I'm going to get some help from my special assistant, James Klutcher, who's going to click some buttons, and things are going to come up on the screen very high tech. So I want to walk through. Can you just, can you just put up the first, the first one? <laughs> More applause for Clutcher. So here's the first thing. There's, there's going to be four steps to this big picture cycle. And the first step is disobedience. And uh, there's actually two stages to this step. Will you go to stage one? There it is, forgetting God. Here's where I want to show you. Look at verse 10. Let me read verse 10. It says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, every commentator, every scholar that I read said, when it says that they didn't know the Lord, there were these Israelites that came on the scene, they didn't know him. Yes, they knew about the Lord, they just didn't know him personally. Meaning, they knew about God, they just stopped caring about God. They knew the right information, it just hadn't captured their imagination. So they forget God, but it leads to kind of this, the second side of this coin, which is, bam, right there, 
forsaking God. They forget God, but then they forsake him. Look at verse um, 13. It says, they abandon the Lord, and they serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, let me get teachy for one minute here, because what in the world is a Baal and an Ashtaroth? Well, the Baal was the local pagan Canaanite god of weather. So, it was a, you know, there's a polytheist, polytheistic region, so they believed all these different gods. Baal was the god that controlled the weather. In an agricultural society, weather was very important. If you had bad weather, it meant you didn't have any crops, which means you didn't have any food, which meant you didn't have any money. So the Israelites were like, we better worship this Baal guy because we want money and we want food. Now, Ashtaroth was like the female counterpart of Baal. It was this pagan uh, goddess of fertility. They believed that Ashtaroth was the one that helped you have children. She controlled whether or not you could have kids. And in this society, having children was super important. If you grew up and older and older and you didn't have kids, that means you had nobody to take care of you when you got older. Kids were essentially your retirement plan. They were your, uh, your 401k. That's why having lots of kids was very important because kids represent, children represented security and stability and, uh, and protection. So when it says that they forgot God and they forsook God, disobedience in this context doesn't mean they were really bad and they started breaking all these rules. What it means is they loved wealth and money and security and comfort and ease and stability more than they loved God. That was step one, disobedience. And it leads to step two, disaster. Uh, Look at... um, Uh, verse 14 and 15, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. Because that's what plunderers do. They plunder. So these plunderers plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Terrible, terrible distress. They're miserable. God lets these other enemy nations conquer them and, and, and oppress them. And so the people of Israel are miserable. They hate this. They, they, uh, they, they're feeling horrible. They're in a bad spot. So because they're in this bad spot, it leads to step three. Step three. There it is. <laughs> Which it leads to them having a desire for help. Look at verse 18. Uh, it says that the people were groaning. They get to the point where they're crying out for help. They hit rock bottom, and they realize, oh my gosh, this is awful. We've had enough. And so they start getting religious again. They turn back to the God that they had abandoned, and they're like, God, we need your help. Can you help us? Can you save us? We need you. And this leads to step four, deliverance. In verse 16, God hears their cries, and he starts raising up these people named these judges. Now, this is where the name of the book comes from. But what you and I picture when we think of the word judge, we think of somebody in like a, a black robe in a courtroom with a gavel. And that is not the image that the Old Testament has of what a judge is. A judge in the book of Judges is a military leader. So think um, Jason Bourne. Think Jack Bauer. Chuck Norris from my old school people. And uh, so these were people that... Uh, these, were, these were military heroes that just like showed up on the scene and like took out the bad guys. In fact, I read a commentary uh, this week that said, actually, a better word would be the word warlord. I was like, that would be an awesome name 
of a book in the Bible. Warlords. What are y'all studying in RUF this semester? Well, we were going to do the Gospel of Mark. I decided to go with warlords instead. So, God raises up these warlord, Jack Bauer type people, and they show up on the scene, and they clean house, and, and everything is peaceful, everything is good again, they feel close to God, and everything is awesome. Except, look at verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back. And there's the final thing. And there's the cycle. As soon as the judge dies, they turn back. And they go right back. And this is the big picture. This is the cycle that you see over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. In fact, I want to I show you one more little detail before we ask the so what question. One more little detail. Look at, verse, um, look at verse 19. It says, but whenever a judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers. This is saying that as it makes its way through its next rotation, they actually get worse. So this isn't like a merry-go-round. This is more like a downward spiral. Reading through the book of Judges and watching this rotation happen over and over and over, it's like watching a toilet slowly flushing. So much so that when you get to the end of the book of Judges, it's, it's the most horrific, climactic ending imaginable. So that'll be fun when we get there at the end of the semester in April. Y'all are excited about summer, and I'm going to drop some horrible stuff in your face. There, there was a, um, a campus minister from a different school that taught through Judges years ago said when he stood up and read the passage in front of his group, there was, there was a girl in his group that like, told him afterward that she wanted to throw up. So you got that to look forward to. That's the end of the book. But it's, uh, that's the big picture of the book of Judges. It's the cycle that happens over and over and over and over and over. Okay. Who cares? Interesting little Bible study we did. So what? What does this have to do with anything? Well, I want to try and draw out two implications of this for the rest of our time. And I want to to try to show you what this says, what this tells us about us, and what this tells us about God. What does this show us about you and me, and what does this show us about God? First, what does this show us about us? Well, um, first of all, doesn't this story sound a little familiar? I mean, this isn't just the story of like the ancient Israelites. This is your life. This is my life. I mean, think about it. If you've ever been to a Christian camp, young life camp or a high school camp, youth group camp, the same thing happens at the end, like the last night of camp for every church camp that's ever existed. What is it? Is that people uh, start making big promises to God. They say, God, I, I am going to, uh, I'm going to break up with my boyfriend and my girlfriend when I get back home. I am going to stop doing all the bad stuff. I'm going to quit the smoking. I'm going to quit the drinking. I'm going to quit sneaking out. I'm going to quit doing, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stop hanging around with that group of people. And then they get back home, and things are great. For a while, a few days, a few weeks, a few months, and then what happens? They just they, they revert right back, just go right back. And you, you don't have to be religious. You don't have to be a, a, a spiritual person. This is your life as well. Think about how you disobey. Maybe you, maybe you disobey uh, your own conscience. Maybe you disobey your family values. You disobey the government's laws. So let's just say you get crazy plastered one night, and that leads to disaster. You, know, you get a DUI. You, uh, you wake up and you just feel horrible. You've been thrown up all night. And that leads to this desire for help, this desire for change. You're like, I have got to stop doing this. I am never going to drink again. I'm not going to hang out with these people. And eventually some deliverance comes, right? The hangover goes away. You get out of jail. Like, everything feels fine. (laughs) And once things are fine, 
then like what happens like when the next party rolls around in a week or so? Then you're just like, you're right back. This is your life. This is my life. And uh, how do you explain this? How do you explain why this is the case with you and me? It's not simply the fact that we're lazy. It's not simply the fact that uh, we're undisciplined and we just... uh, we just don't keep our promises. And it's not just that we're forgetful. You know, like we, don't, we haven't learned our lesson. There's something deeper going on here. Here's what I think this shows us about us. Here's what it shows us. It shows us that we are controlled by what we love. What you love is the thing that controls you. You can tell yourself all day long that you should eat better, that you should stop drinking, that you should do this or that. But what you love to do is always going to trump what you should do. Love always overrides should. I mean, think about it. If you love cookout, if you love Taco Bell, if you love drinking beer, you can tell yourself a million times, I should eat better, I should exercise more, I should go to the T-Rex, but you're always going to go back to what you love, right? If you love porn, it doesn't matter how many times you tell yourself, I should stop, I, I, I should get help, you'll just always go back to what you love. You can tell yourself a million times, I should use my phone less. I should get off social media. But if you love, if the thing that you love is entertainment, if the thing that you love is the dopamine hit uh, from the little pings, if the thing that you love is information and control, then you'll, you'll always go back to what you love no matter how many times you should yourself. So here's the thing. Did you notice the language that the text uses to describe how the Israelites relate to other gods? Three times in this passage it says they bowed down to them. Verse 12, verse 17, verse 19. That's a pretty loaded phrase. If you're going to bow down to something, that means you find this thing supremely beautiful. This is the thing that matters most to you. So here, here's this picture of God's people, people saved by his grace. And, and what they love more than God is they love comfort, they love entertainment, they love ease, they love security, they love money. And I think that's actually a really helpful picture because it, sh- it helps explain why there can be people that, that profess to be Christians and yet they're racists. That's why, that's why there are people that profess to be Christians and yet they are addicted to beauty and materialism. Uh, this is why you can have people that are uh, professed to be Christians and yet uh, they are filled with anxiety and workaholics because they pay lip service to God, but what they actually love is power or control or comfort or whatever it is. That's the thing that they most deeply love, and so that's the thing that controls their life, and they keep going back to it. And so here's the question. Do you know this about yourself? Do you know that whatever it is that you love, that's the thing that's actually ruling your life? That's the thing that's governing and controlling your life. It's what you love. Maybe somewhere in the past uh, you had an exciting encounter with God. Maybe he, was, um, he felt alive to you. He felt real to you. And gradually over time, you, you, maybe you've had this experience where you, kinda, you wake up one day and you realize, I say that I'm a Christian, I haven't like prayed in weeks or months. I mean, you've had, you've had this experience, right? Maybe. Uh, where you're like, I, I've, why is it that I feel so distant from God? Why do I feel like my, my spiritual life is so thin? Like my spiritual life is on life support. 
And I want to su- gently suggest to you that the reason why your spiritual life might feel like it's on life support isn't because you can't connect with the music at RUF. It's because you've bowed down to something else. Something, uh, you have found something more beautiful, more meaningful to you than God. And that's the thing, whatever it is, forgetting God and forsaking God, that's the thing that's always leading you into disaster. So for you, if, it's, if, you are, if you're willing to admit, I honestly, deep down, I just love Netflix more than God. Which you're free to admit. If I love Netflix more than God, then that maybe explain why I'm so behind on school. Maybe explain why I feel so lonely, that why I feel so empty, I just feel bored. If you say, I love my GPA more than God, this might explain why I feel so stressed, why I feel so overworked, why I feel so anxious and competitive all the time. If you say, I love people's approval more than God, this might explain why I feel so lost, why I don't even know who I am because I'm always performing around people. I don't even know who the real me is. That's the disaster that these other gods are always leading you into. And so here's the last thing I'll say about this. What I think is fascinating about this picture is it shows us that our real problem isn't having our circumstances fixed. We always think the main problem in my life is I just need my circumstances changed. Like, this is, you know, you're down here in the desire for help thing. I, this is a, a crappy situation. I need, I need help with my roommates. I need that person to get back together with me. I need to work things out with my family. I need a job, whatever. I need God. I need you to fix my life. But what happens when God fixes your circumstances? You tend to just go right back, which shows you that your real problem isn't your life circumstances. Your real problem is you. The thing that needs fixing isn't your circumstances. It's the thing inside of you called the thing that you, you're the, the, the loving mechanism inside of you. You love the wrong things. That's the thing that needs to be fixed. That's the sobering thing about this picture that shows you about you is that you have a big need for a savior. And I have a big need for a savior because I love the wrong things. And you love the wrong things. So, last thing. What does this picture tell us about God? If this is what it shows us about us, what does this show us about God? Well, uh, if you look down here in the bottom when it says, you know, the desire for help, all throughout the book of Judges, when they turn back to God and they cry out for help, every commentator says these are not cries of repentance, meaning they're not turning to God because they finally realize that they need God and they want him, they want God. What they want is they want relief. So they turn to God because they want God to fix their life so they can go back to having what they previously wanted, which was the comfort and the ease and the money and the security and everything else. They don't want God. And what God continues to do over and over and over and over is keep delivering them, keep being gracious, keep forgiving them. He keeps wanting people who don't want him. That's crazy. Uh, Here's a God who they did not trust or they did not want, and he keeps miraculously saving them, and he keeps doing it over and over and over all throughout the book. And just like he keeps taking Israel back, the reality is he will keep taking you back. That no matter how many times you fail, no matter how many times you abandon him, no matter how many times you leave him to love something else, no matter how many times around the merry-go-round or the spiral you've been on, he keeps taking you back. His grace never runs out. He, loved, he really does love with a love that will not let you go. That's pretty crazy. This is what this shows us about God. Tim Keller has this little book on the book of Judges that I've been relying heavily on, and he had this quote at the beginning 
I just thought was amazing. Here's what he says. He says, God relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it or seek it or even appreciate it after they have been saved by it. That's what this shows you about God. We continue to run. He continues to give grace. We run away from him. He keeps running after us over and over and over. Now, here's the question. Why in the world does God do this? Here's a, here's a thought. Here's why I think God does it. Because he doesn't want you to just be guilted into changing your behavior. He doesn't want you guilted into behaving more betterly. <laughs> think about this. Let's just say that you're, let's say you're driving down I-40. You're going to Nashville for a concert or whatever. So you're heading down I-40. And you're going 10 miles over the speed limit. In BD. And so you're just going on, you're going on the thing. And uh, you, you take a, you know, the, 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 the Highway kind of curves a little bit, and, and hiding under you know, the overpass, you see the cop car sitting there with the radar gun. And what happens inside of you? Instant panic, <laughs> flood, of, flood of emotion. And what do you do? You, you put your foot on the brake, and so you start slowing down. You go to the speed limit. You're 10 and 2. <laughs> and you, you drive past the cop, and you're like, oh, gosh, you look in your rearview mirror. Please do not. Please do not. <laughs> now, what, do you, what, what just happened? Something happened that made you obey the law. You're actually doing what you're supposed to do. You're obeying. You're behaving the right way. But what was it that motivated you to get there? It was guilt out of uh, the fact that you've been breaking the law. And it's fear of punishment. Guilt and fear drove you to obey, to being good. There you are. And then you notice, oh, the cop has not turned on his lights. His lights, her lights. And uh, the, the coast is clear. And you get five minutes down the road and what happens? 10, 15 miles over. So here's the point, is guilt and fear were great motivators to keep you to doing the right thing, but only in the short term. In the long term, you just reverted right back. God does not look at you and say, okay, I could really make you feel like a crappy person, and I want to guilt you, and and he he could scare you. He could threaten you and and make you feel a lot of fear. You're going to go to hell if you don't get it together. And, and you might change. You, you might change your behavior, and you might have a spiritual burst of enthusiasm to really get serious. And maybe you've done this before. Maybe some of you have gotten really serious about your faith before. But if you were honest, the reason why you did it is because you were motivated by guilt and fear. And guess what? It only worked in the short term, didn't it? And you went right back. Because guilt and fear are not great long-term motivators. They're great short-term motivators. But God does not want short-term bursts of change in you. He wants deep permanent change inside of you. And so the way that he does it, he says, I want you to experience my grace over and over and over until that begins to erode that thing inside of your heart to where you know in your bones that you are loved with a love that will not let you go. And when you get touched in the center of your heart like that, knowing that you are loved, guess what begins to happen in your heart? It awakens love for God in return. You begin to love him because he first loved you, and now your life begins to be controlled by what you love, which is him. But it is controlled in a, in a relationship that is dominated and, and motivated by grace and mercy and endless love that never runs out no matter how many times you run away from him, no matter how many times you abandon him. He has a love that will not let you go. This is what this shows us about God. We have a great Savior for our need. But here's what's depressing. Look at verse 19. It says, uh, 
whenever the judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt. Here's this judge, here's this deliverer who comes on the scene and he dies and they go right back. And what this shows you is that all these judges that we're going to look at all semester long, they, they didn't do the trick. They couldn't fix their hearts. Judge dies and they keep going back. What, they, what we needed, what they need is a, is a different judge, a, do, a new deliverer. And that's what, that's what God does is he sends a different judge, a new deliverer that comes on the scene. And this deliverer, the Lord Jesus, he dies. Only three days later, he is raised again. So that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are loved. He dies because he bears all of the full weight of punishment and the responsibility of your disobedience on himself at the cross so that you would know in your bones that you are loved. And that that might awaken and change you deeply from the inside out. I want to end with this. We, um, I've told, I think I've told this story in here before. It's... it's uh, Historians debate whether or not this is a true story. It's it's kind of legend and and legendy ish, lore ish. Um, but I'm gonna tell it to you anyway on the assumption that it's true. Or at least I hope it's true. Um, it's a story about this young guy named Robert Robinson who became a Christian in the 1700s, and uh, he was living a wild, crazy, reckless life. And Jesus kind of wrecking balled in his life, and he was converted. He was he was graciously and miraculously saved and delivered and he actually his life was so dramatically changed that he went into the ministry he became a pastor he's, he did what I'm doing right now talking at people and uh, he, he wrote some hymns and um, kind of had a successful ministry and uh, much like this cycle he, his that was his story he kind of slowly drifted away from God and got to a point where he just kind of just wrecked his life just a train wreck of his life and uh, he felt so um, that he had screwed up so badly, he really thought, I, I, I've messed up too much, I can't go back. I can't go back to God. And so one day, he's, driving, he, he's, he's riding in a, a, like a, a horse carriage thing, which was like the old, way, old version of like taxis or Ubers. And um, so he's sitting in this kind of horse carriage thing, and this woman, this stranger, hops on board in the little stagecoach thing with him, and she's, she's holding this uh, hymn book, She's reading this hymn book. People back then, they carried around these little hymn books or prayer books. And you know whenever you're into like a new podcast or show or movie, you just tell everybody about like, oh my gosh, have you not seen that documentary? You've got to see it. And so you just evangelize everybody with, with what you love. And so she, she was reading this hymn book and she was doing that. She's like, oh my gosh, have you read this hymn? Come thou fount of every blessing. It's amazing. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Streams of mercy. Oh my gosh, this is incredible. And he sits there and he's just kind of like crushed. And here's what he says, quote, this is how, how the history, the, the legend of this story has it. He looks at her and he says, Madam, I'm the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had back then. And she looks at him and she says to him, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. What I love about that story is here's this woman that essentially told somebody what he knew to be true. He had just forgotten it. It wasn't near to him, but she, she was reminding him the streams of mercy are never ceasing and they are still flowing. And if you are thirsty, come. Come and jump in.
And so that's how I want to that's how I want to end tonight. Is I want to end with the same invitation to come and to jump into the streams of mercy. It does not matter what you have done, what you are currently doing, what you will do in the future, how many times around this cycle you have been on. It doesn't matter. The streams of mercy are never ceasing, and they are still flowing, and they are available in Jesus for you right now. So come to the water. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would be kind to open up our eyes to the reality of your great love and your grace for us. And would that, would that move our heart, would that change our heart and awaken our heart to love, not out of guilt, not out of fear, but would our lives look radically different because we know deep in our bones that we are treasured by you. As much as we screw up, as much as we mess up, as much as we uh, just wreck our lives, help us to know deep inside of us that you love us with a love that will not let us go. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.